If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, lots going on, but uh, pretty bizarre stuff as well. Uh, inflation, let's start with that. I know uh, uh, the Deputy uh, Prime Minister said that they had this nipped in the bud back in the summer, but apparently not the case. Uh, 4% is the uh, inflation rate over August. Uh, groceries, a good portion of that at 6.9%. Gas also. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And uh, as well, talk about uh, the CEOs uh, coming into Ottawa. And uh, uh, being shamed, as uh, as the innovation minister said, and we'll see what that leads uh, anywhere, or perhaps more taxes. I'm not sure. Uh, oh, uh, at least good news in the auto workers' situation. Their strike is, uh, or sorry, their negotiations are continuing, and there's another offer on the table. So we'll keep our eye on that. And uh, it's just the bizarre story of the day. Remember, we were talking about the cold reception that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was getting in India during the G20 summit. Uh, well, apparently we know the reason why now. And it's and and that's the other question is why now? Um, but anyway, um, India has expelled a Canadian diplomat after Canada, of course, has done the same. It appears uh, more interference in Canadian life. Allegedly, India involved in uh, the killing of a Sikh leader in British Columbia. India rejects these allegations. Uh, Justin Trudeau came out to say he made the he talked about this yesterday, um, but then came out to, uh, today saying we're not trying to provoke or escalate. Might be a little late for that, but uh, obviously, um, you, you've got to head this, uh, hit this stuff head on. And um, at the end of the day, we're coming off the two Michaels and what happened with China, and then as well the uh, the allegations of election interference in the last two elections uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, and now a Canadian a Canadian citizen killed on Canadian soil. Uh, think about this. So uh, it, it's great for the prime minister to come out and talk about this. Uh, but how the heck is it happening? Um, election interference, uh, the two Michaels and, and now uh, a killing or uh, an assassination of some sort. I mean, this is absolutely bizarre. And you really have to want, uh, wonder who, who, who's, who's watching the fort here. Uh, allegations of the Indian government uh, was involved in the murder of a Canadian Sikh leader in British Columbia. I put a renewed spotlight on the Khalistan movement. Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau dropped the bombshell yesterday in the House of Commons when he accused the Indian Prime Minister and the government of playing a role in the June slaying of 45-year-old Hardeep Nijar. Uh, Trudeau said Canadian intelligence agencies have credible information that agents of the Indian government were involved in the murder. He did not elaborate further, but described the victim as a Canadian citizen. 
and India has denied those allegations and ordered the expulsion of a Canadian diplomat, a uh, tit-for-tat sort of thing. And the allegation has put a renewed o- uh, focus on the Sikh independence in India, also known as the uh, Khalistan movement. And there you have it. So uh, a very bizarre turn of events. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say of why this is all coming to the forefront now. Obviously, um, this goes back a ways. We wanted to make sure we were taking the time uh, to talk with our allies, to share what we knew. We wanted to make sure that we fully shared with the government of India uh, the seriousness and the depths of our uh, preoccupations and indeed conclusions. Uh, but. Uh, Canadians have a right to know and uh, need to know when things are, are going on like this. Um, and, you know, thank you. Uh, yeah, we all love to know what's what, what's going on. But again, we seem to be late to the fire here. And uh, the emergency preparedness minister, uh, Harjit Sajan, commented on this as well. Here's what he had to say. Yesterday's message also sends a very message of confidence and a strong message to all the communities who are potentially impacted by foreign interference that their government not only takes foreign interference extremely seriously, but this is something we've been on for a very long time. Some things you can talk about in public and some things that you can't, but this is something that we will always, as Canadians, protect ourselves. Uh, How can you have confidence? How can you have confidence? Uh, It's great you're telling us about this now, but the man's dead. Um, uh, How does this happen? How does this get to this point? That's what we don't seem to be addressing here. Uh, again, it's great to stand out in front of the messaging after the caucus meeting in London, and that's what they're doing here. But again, how does this happen? And why is it happening in the country of Canada, whether it's Chinese Communist Party influence or obviously what is suspected here with India? Here's what the legal counsel for the World Sikh Organization had to say. First of all, those people that are involved in this killing they need to be brought to justice. But beyond that, there's actually a list of Canadian Sikhs who are currently under threat, who are currently being told that they can't be in their own homes, can't be around their own children because they face imminent threat. And if they're shot, they don't want their kids to get shot at the same time. I mean, this is unacceptable. This is Canada and we can't have these sort of threats. The first step yesterday was ejecting that one diplomat. The entire Indian diplomatic corps needs to be reviewed to make sure that there's no spies here, that they're not engaging in surveillance or interference. So there's a lot more that needs to happen. Uh, there you go. Pick your situation, whether it's this or election interference. Obviously, y- y- you have to wonder who's uh, who's minding the ship. Want to bring in Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former liberal MP. A lot of stuff to ask him about, including uh, gas prices and, um, and and grocery prices. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. I'm here in Ottawa now, so thanks for having me uh, this far away. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Perfect. So, um, first of all, let's talk about fluctuating gas prices. What's going on now? Is this a winter-summer thing? Uh, It's a market that is uh, very confused, but it is definitely a switch from uh, uh, summer blends of fuel to winter uh, blends of fuel. So, yesterday, those who follow me on Twitter, Gas Price Wizard, will know that... uh, at around 4 or 4.30, I tweeted out that uh, there would be an $0.08 cent a litre drop for uh, drivers here in the GTA, Greater Hamilton area, London, Ontario, all of Quebec, all of, uh, um, of Ontario, uh, most of the Maritimes, whenever their regulated bodies get around to uh, making that adjustment. And so, yeah, it's a one fell swoop increase. So if you were paying as much as 170.9, Scott, uh, wait till midnight tonight, it'll drop into no uh, higher than 162.9 at most stations or less. And uh, obviously, just a normal fall uh, and spring ebb and flow of things. Is that accurate? Uh, half of it. 
half of that, uh, four or five cents. The other three or four cents is the result of a shortage in diesel. Refineries are running overtime trying to produce more diesel because you can't turn a switch on or off. As you try to use more barrels of oil to make more diesel, you are also, as a consequence, producing a lot more gasoline. So there's a bit of a glut on the gasoline side. Hmm. And so uh, a bit of an advantage for consumers. Uh, but that situation will probably resolve itself in the next couple of weeks. Uh, refineries going through maintenance and, of course, uh, the ever uh, you know increasing concern that uh, diesel and heating supplies, which they're all related to, uh, will become an even shorter supply. And so uh, gasoline may, as a consequence, uh, consequence, start to move back up. But look, not only will you see an $0.08 cent decrease tomorrow, but let me... That you would be the first one to know this. Uh, all of Ontario will also see a uh, what looks like a penny or maybe even a two cent further decrease come Thursday. So you know if you don't like a dollar sixty two point nine at the top end, wait till Thursday. It'll be one sixty one nine or maybe even one sixty point nine. That's a price we haven't paid in over two months. Mm, all right. So uh, I know you, you you had years as a as a Liberal MP and such. I want to ask you your thoughts. Uh, the CEOs of all the grocery companies called in uh, again. They did it a six months ago, but I, I guess it's different now. And 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 the, the walk of shame sort of thing. Does do any of these CEOs use the carbon tax as an excuse for? the inflation we're seeing in their industry. For example, the transportation costs that obviously go on uh, bringing this all to market. Does that come up? Would it? Well, I'm sure it does come up because distribution is a reality. Look, the rate of inflation went up 4% this month because if we compare August 2023 prices to August 2022 prices, uh, most, even those who don't like to talk about these things, have had to admit that gasoline was the main driver. So yes, when you start messing around with the price of energy, and you add a 14.31 cent carbon tax, and you propose to increase it by three or four cents a year, and the average price is a buck sixty. You know, 15 cents plus HST uh, works out to 16. That's a 10 percent kick in the pants. That's very inflationary. And for the Bank of Canada, it was completely onto this. You know, climate policies to say that oh, we're still going to hold to that two percent uh, target while accepting the fact that energy prices, the primary driver of inflation, there are other factors, of course. Mortgages being the other one, uh, you know, uh, there's been a litany of other issues that have brought forth. But it's inevitable that food prices are going to take a hit. Scott, four or five years ago, when I left Gas Buddy and started working here at Canadians for Affordable Energy, it was the number five, maybe six issue in the country. But I warned mm. people that if we kept messing around with this, blocking pipelines, reducing the power or purchase power of the Canadian dollar by not uh, getting anything that else the world wants to invest in, we're going to wind up paying a lot more. And affordability is now clearly, by far and away, the number one issue. There's various variations to that. But when you mess around with uh, energy prices, uh, you mess around with food prices and pretty much everything else. All right. So put your MP hat back on. And uh, as far as competition, what have you, what sort of things are said in that meeting between a minister and those CEOs? Give us some sort of political insight, here, Dan. <laughs> well, guys, we know that inflation on food is, has hit us, uh, has crested. So the Liberals and the NDP and the Conservatives all know this. So what they're doing is maybe more window dressing, knowing that the future will be a little better. They all will be able to claim victory or the fact that uh, hmm. hey, we stopped uh, this inflationary, you know, month over month increase of, you know, a uh, year over year increase of ten, fifteen, twenty percent. Having said that, though, um, certain things we can't get around. Twenty-five years ago, an enterprising MP called Dan McTague took on the grocery industry because of all the mergers that the Competition Bureau had permitted. The same competition bureau today saying, hang on a second, there's probably not enough competition. There's too much market power by a handful of people. Hmm. Duh. I told you that. 
you fought me like a son of a gun. And in fact, the only time we actually got any agreement, I noticed one of the things liberals trotted out last week at their caucus meeting in London was the efficiencies defense. Well, there was a guy named Dan McTague who actually made that a votable bill in the House of Commons. But were it not for some liberal senators who blocked it out of vested interests, I'm saying something that's not controversial. It's true. It's actually in a legal report that was done very recently. You would have not had to worry about uh, companies like the grocery industry or the airline industry or uh, energy industry or superior propane or any of these other companies using the so-called efficiencies defense, the loophole that gives you a virtual monopoly, which is part and parcel of the reason we're paying as much as we are for groceries in this country today. Bring back Dan. Come on, you can do it no, one Dan more ain't time. Dan. Back. <laughs> <laughs> Once he's gone, he ain't going back, like Neil, Neil Young said. All right, Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, giving us the view from all different perspectives, which we love. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always good to be on Scott's show. Thanks, Scott. All right, we've uh, certainly heard a lot uh, in the last couple of days in regard to uh, CEOs of grocers being called in, called to the carpet, per se, or uh, shaming them in some way, I guess, and 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 trying to get some sort of uh, solution or stabilization when it comes to food prices. Uh, the magic day is Thanksgiving, whatever's going to happen by then. Anyway, what does it mean? Have we already been through this? Uh, and what will be the end result? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and here now. Sylvain, I'm sure you've been talking to a lot of people. Uh, what are your thoughts of, of what we saw yesterday? And what is the difference between what happened yesterday and what happened six months ago? Um, well, lots of things. First of all, I was there. I was in the room. I was uh, invited to uh, join the minister. In fact, I've, I've been advising him for the last, I guess, two months now. Um, and, you know, Scott, it, we are looking at a government uh, trying to figure out ways to help Canadians, like quickly, uh, looking for actions uh, when it comes to food inflation. It is an issue for everyone. So, uh, So that's why... Um, the government felt compelled to uh, call for a meeting. Now, I wasn't expecting all five of the big five to show up, but they all did. So um, my expectations weren't necessarily high because these companies compete against each other. And, and how much they're willing to share in a meeting with a minister is, well, you don't want to share too much, obviously. And so finding solutions, about, especially about pricing. So, so uh, but I thought the meeting overall was quite constructive to be honest. It, it went as good as it, it as it could. Um again, what was the difference between this meeting and the ones of 6 months ago when this happened? Other I guess then they're all here at once. What's the difference yeah, between so, the two? So, yeah, no, the tone was different. So, uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Christia Friedland actually started things off with her with her opening remarks and then uh, Mr. Champagne took over as chair. Then I presented uh, for about 15 minutes. But the first part of my presentation was about food inflation. And uh, and I did make a case in front of everyone, uh, including the minister, that there is no evidence of profiteering. There's no The data doesn't really show that there's profiteering. And I actually spent... Uh, about five minutes explaining uh, why and and present all the facts. As soon as I did that, 
you could feel in the room that that COs, uh, they all thought they were going into a meeting uh, where where fingers would be pointing at them, uh, accusing mm. them. And I basically was quite clear that this is this is just not worth it. We need to focus on solutions because the reality is that 82%, 82% of Canadians actually believe that yeah. greed is behind higher food prices. Yeah. So that's really the problem. And, and it's funny because we've talked to many business props who say the same thing. The profit uh, margin in grocery is so thin that uh, there's not that much room. What about the competition angle? There should be more competition. Does that hold water? Well, I think I think we need more competition, and the one way to do that is to actually make sure that there is an actual competition watchdog that is efficient. Uh, and so that's why I think that uh, the NDP's uh, bill yesterday was uh, was long overdue. We need to reform the act to give more power, subpoena power, uh, allowing uh, the bureau to have access to data during investigations not allowing companies to say no to the bureau uh, during an investigation. So those are, those are all positive things. But in the room, of course, um, the minister was looking for, was looking for short-term actions. That's not all yeah. that obvious, to be honest. And, uh, and, and, of course, I don't think they were in the room because the prime minister threatened them of, of taxing them or anything like that. They just showed up. Because they want to show, they wanted to show respect first of all, and secondly, they just wanted to work with the, with the minister, which is unique to them because it's not. Remember, it's not the minister of agriculture and food; it's the minister of innovation. And so, when you deal with the minister of ag, it's all it's often a farm gate stuff. This time, it was all about the consumer. Very different. Mm. So, um, and I know there's stuff you can talk about and you can't, but what can be done, even if it is in the medium or long term, that, that can help everyone here? Are there obvious solutions here, or is this just market conditions? Well, a lot of things the government can do to help. Uh, it's not just about the industry, I think. Uh, the snack tax is one example. Volume discounting is something that annoys a lot of people, uh, too. Uh, those things can be addressed very quickly uh, by both uh, manufacturers and, and retailers. Um, obviously, uh, the discussion around the code of conduct is is a big one. It's it's very complicated for you to for me for me to explain what the code of conduct is. But it, essentially, um, you have a couple of grocers bullying vendors, and uh, and and they force them to uh, to go out of business essentially. And and that really suppresses competition in manufacturing, and that's not good for us. So we need more choice. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we saw Kleenex leave Canada, Nestle mm. left Canada this summer. That's why there's lots of pressure put on manufacturing right now. And 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 if we have pure options as consumers, well, guess what happens to prices? They go up. Uh, the prime minister suggested if something isn't done, he would do it. And then that you were making uh, or alluding to taxes, which many are concerned would just be passed on to the consumer. Um, rather than more tax, what about lowering taxes? Do, do you think any of the CEOs would have said, hey, what about fuel taxes, transportation costs? Can you help us oh, there? Came up. Oh, it came up. Absolutely. Yes, of course. Uh, and- so it's not just about strategy and greed. Uh 
some policies are actually making our food more expensive, and a lot of it is 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 invisible uh, to all of us. And that's why it's so easy to point fingers at grocers. People pointing fingers at grocers don't know how to read financial statements. They don't know how to read uh, financial. They don't know how to actually. They don't understand policy. Policy. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Sylvan. Though, do you think you, you talked about like eighty percent or eighty-five percent think that this is just greed from them? Well, where are they getting that message? They're getting that from politicians, aren't they? Of course, yeah. repeated messages, repeated, and if you repeat. The same message over and over and over again. People will start yeah. believing it. As soon as I actually tweet or X, whatever the term is now, yeah. uh, something that would suggest that reflation is a myth, I get immediately attacked. It's incredible. It's quite violent, actually. Yeah, and, and, and again, as we search for solutions. Uh, Sylvan, Dr. Sylvan Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and talking about uh, the price of food and what we can do about it. Sylvan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. The Prime Minister alluded to this yesterday. Uh, relations with India are breaking down following the death of a Sikh activist in British Columbia. And the Prime Minister now accusing the government of India of being behind that assassination. Obviously, we were questioning the cold relations between the two at the G20. I guess we know now, uh, now know why. Um, but again, why now? Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests of brought at the McDonald laurier Institute and here now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. It's good to hear from you. I, you know, I would say, like you said, death of a Sikh activist. I mean, this was a hit. You know, three guys come up. They fire 50 bullets uh, into his truck window, smashing the window. And the man, of course, uh, dies in a, in a pool of blood. So it's a pretty dramatic um, uh, hit, you know, by, by, by somebody. But you know, the prime minister says he has credible allegations. Uh, you know, I, I, I think before you start um, expelling diplomats and accusing foreign nations of doing something, you should really complete the investigation and make sure that uh, we've got all our all our facts together. But um, that being said, it's pretty dramatic and it looks like it's burnt relations between Canada and India right to the ground for a very long time to come. Why has this happened now? Why is this information coming out now? Well, I think that it had got to the press. So the Globe and Mail was going to do a feature on it. But, you know, if I was the prime minister, and I don't think that'll ever happen, but, you know, I would say, yes, uh, the Globe and Mail's report is true. We have these uh, credible allegations. And when we've completed the investigation, I will be, um, you know, telling the Canadian people here in Parliament what has happened and how the Canadian government will respond to it. So, you know, it does worry me. And I think uh, certainly there's some contrast with the way that we've been addressing uh, Chinese interference in our democratic processes, um, uh, including the police stations that we know the Chinese uh, authorities have opened up in Canada, seem to deal with the, with the Indians with alacrity. But with regard to China, nothing much seems to be happening at all. So, you know, it, it, you do worry about whether there's some political aspect of this and you know in this kind of matter of foreign affairs and particularly something as really very very serious as this uh you know you don't want domestic politics to enter into it 
Um, obviously, uh, you, you're referencing the Chinese Communist Party and the allegations of election interference over the last couple of elections, then all of a sudden, uh, or as well as the two Michaels. And now we have uh, a killing of a Canadian on Canadian soil. Uh, what does that say about foreign interference and how far behind we are on this game? Yeah, I absolutely think you're right. I mean, it, you know, we should be having a lot more resources into monitoring what's going on with foreign representatives in Canada to make sure that they're not engaging in, you know, things like this, like ordering hits on on Sikh separatist elements that the government of India, you know, wants to to quieten down or intimidate the other Sikhs in in the country. So, you know, that is uh, you know, that is something that we seem to be falling down considerably compared to our allies like Australia, the UK and the US, who um, seem to be much more willing to to be much more aggressive in indicating to those nations the limits of what's diplomacy and what's unacceptable interference in Canada. But and and also we don't seem to have a lot of information here. You know, when the Russians poisoned um, people in Britain or when the Saudis dismembered a journalist at their embassy in in uh, uh, Istanbul. You know, there was a lot more out there. We knew who it was. We had video. Um, you know, it was very clear where it goes. We haven't been able to establish whether these things were ordered by, say, Mr. Putin or the prince of the Saudi Arabia. And we'll probably never be able to find out if this is something that went through um, the uh, Indian... <coughs> Uh, President Modi. But, uh, you know, I would just feel more reassured if we had more details about exactly what happened and who was behind it and complete the investigation and then start leveling these accusations. I mean, even if our investigation proves inconclusive, at least we've we've tried our best to come to terms with it and and give the Indians uh, a fair um, a fair review of this. And we're not getting a lot of support from our allies on this one. They're saying the same thing as me, which is uh, let's see what the investigation proves. So hmm. I think I think the prime minister has miscalculated uh, the international impact of this and has acted a bit prematurely. But, you know, that being said, the matter is extremely serious. And I think we have to trust that Prime Minister Trudeau would not be making these kind of very serious allegations against a foreign government if he didn't have a lot of uh, pretty good information about it. We only have a few seconds left here, Charles. Uh, he said he's not trying to provoke or escalate. What is he trying to do then? Yeah, I mean, if he's not, there's not much more provocation or escalation that could be done beyond this. So hmm. I'd take that one with a shovel full of salt. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks for the discussion. Be well. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, well, there's been rumor, all sorts of, uh, not rumors, but uh, numbers such as 14.2% uh, a tax hike on uh, the horizon. These are numbers thrown around staff and such uh, as they try to prepare for uh, what lies ahead of the city and many cities facing uh, a 
lot of economic difficulty. So um, proposed about a 14.2% increase. That being said, uh, the mayor, uh, Andrea Horvath, has called that, called that um, uh, nonsensical, saying, you know, th- there's got to be a way to, to make adjustments and, and pull into reserves and what have you. But what do you do if you're a city? We certainly saw this going on in Toronto with the premier meeting, uh, uh, the mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, uh, the other day and, and talking about the difficulty that they are in in a post-pandemic world. To talk about all of this and how you balance it, let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University and is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. So we all knew, Henry, and we talked about this before, that you know every government was going to uh, face some obviously challenges coming out of the pandemic municipally, uh, obviously the case as well. Uh, numbers thrown around like 14.2%. Uh, which obviously makes citizens just cringe. How do you balance this? Well, I know the the uh, I'm sure the city uh, uh, people running the city basically know that this is a first number. They basically put yeah. together put out a number that that will cover all the things that the councilors uh, want to do, and then then they have to get it down to a point where it's acceptable to the population. So that's what we're going to, and and so the mayor has. To put out the you know the how she's going to do it she's going to you know give has given guidelines to the senior staff uh to start cutting to look for savings to look for things they can cut uh and then and then at a certain point uh, the 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 budget will then go to the councillors and i would assume that they'll do a little more counting their, uh, cu- cutting themselves are there reserves stashes away that you can nip into when you're in a government like this that that, that has a, a challenge like this on their hands? I'm not really sure where the money where where these stashes of money are that they can mm. get a hold of. I don't I don't think they're there, but uh, uh, there there might be some things that are you know unspent money from previous years. So uh, that you know so that that that's maybe what they're talking about because sometimes they do you know put in in the budget that we're going to spend a certain amount of money on something and they don't actually spend it all so it carries over to, can carry over to the next year so maybe maybe that's what they're talking about i don't know what else they would talk about a uh, reduction of service just in, in, inevitable here reduction of services when you do stuff like this well there's certain things that are going to be real problems one of the big problems is infrastructure um the the province has really cut back uh the um, how um, the city can get infrastructure from people who are building things, and that's about four percent, which is very big. So that's that's a real problem. And the government has sort of hinted in some ways that it's going to give money for infrastructure, but there's no details on that. So I think I think essentially the mayors, whether the mayor of Toronto or the mayor of Hamilton or any other mayor, uh, is going to you know go to the premier and say, listen, uh, we we've got to have some money for infrastructure because we simply can't uh, get by uh, without, uh, you know, uh, having some money from uh, the provincial government. Since the provincial government essentially told the developers at a certain point, people building stuff, hey, we're going to cut your, your costs. And we, we see that the upper levels of government want to do that. We see also, you know, the federal government's going to reduce a tax for builders. So we're going to see, so both the federal and provincial government are doing that sort of thing. And some of those come out of the you know, may come out of the the budget of the federal or provincial government, but the, so far the money has, you know, here is, is supposed to come out of the city of Hamilton, and that's quite a bit of money. So there, 
there's gonna have, we're gonna have to see what happens with that uh, with the infrastructure uh, portfolio there. Boy, remember when the development taxes first started and were first thrown on and, and people were worried about it then, and now it's just become uh, you can't live without it. So when you're asking people to reduce costs, it's it's impossible to do because the, the taxes are already built in. What must be tough, Henry, is that they got to do this every year. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously, I don't remember a year where, oh, we got lots, so uh, we're going to be good. I mean, it's always cut cut it's always how do we make uh, do with less and such and then obviously you know post uh, a global pandemic we are where we are mm-hmm. you have to wonder how much more they can pull out of their out of <laughs> out of their pack really to, to help this yeah i know it is, I, it's going to be interesting to watch what they cut uh, out, of, out of the out of the budgets as they go forward but i would assume they will they'll, they'll get at least half of that you know cut out Maybe more. We'll have to see. Uh, but uh, and it, a lot of it will come out of int- I mean, if the provincial government doesn't give um, or the federal government doesn't give the uh, give us any uh, give the cities uh, any new, um, you know, infrastructure money, then then there's going to be cut cuts back on on infrastructure. So we're going to have, you know, things that should be done on roads and services and everything, you know. We'll start. We'll start to see that they'll be cut back. So that is, and of course, people will be very unhappy about that. But you know, that that's one thing they can do. There's, I mean, there's other things. There's all sorts of things you can do. Uh, but uh, that that's that's the big one that I would worry about right now. And even at 14, you take that in half. That's seven percent. That's still people yeah. would still be cringing at that as well. Yeah. Well, that 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 will be certainly viewed as as a high. You know, as as too much. Hmm. Uh, I think that maybe there's a chance of dropping it a bit more than that, uh, because there have we have had uh, budgets in the past that have been in the the six percent range. So, that, so then if that that hmm. maybe where we will wind up. We may, if we get lucky, we may even get below that six percent. But it's uh, we have to just see what the whether they can get money out of the fe- you know federal and provincial government between now and the time they. They actually set the bu- put the budget, the final budget out. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you, Scott. Nine hundred CHML. It's Hamilton today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from nine hundred CHML. All right. Uh, yesterday, the prime minister. Uh, released uh, information saying that um, uh, India has involvement in the death of a Sikh leader in British Columbia. And this is uh, the reason for the, uh, I guess, chilly relationship between the Prime Minister of India and our Prime Minister during the last G20 uh, last week. What are the ramifications of this? What does it say about foreign interference and are, um, uh, what are we doing to stop it? Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. How are you today? Uh, so far, so good, Phil. What are your thoughts when you hear this uh, at first? What, what's your reaction? Well, it certainly is a very, I think, significant allegation that India had something to do, if not was responsible for the death of the, of the Sikh activists in B.C., um, I found it really quite fascinating, Scott, that we have a prime minister who stood up in the House and said, we have solid intelligence pointing to this particular involvement. This is the same prime minister who told Canadians he 
didn't read any intelligence on Chinese foreign interference in our country dating back, oh, 1980. So any consistency in terms of the use of intelligence, like I'm happy, Scott. As somebody who spent 32 years in intelligence, I'm happy when it makes an impact and helps form decisions. So that's a good thing. But it, it, it just begs the question as to why was this intelligence seen as valid and the other intelligence wasn't? I don't have to answer that question. And, you know, it's great that the uh, prime minister, I guess, is coming out and telling us this. But where is all of this before these events happen? The two Michaels, a Chinese Communist Party interference in the last two elections. Now a Canadian killed on Canadian soil. Uh, It's great that we're standing up and acknowledging it. What are we doing to stop it? That's a really good question. I think that 40 million Canadians are there about one answer to that. And, you know, that's that's the whole purpose of intelligence is that you gather information in advance to help you take actions or make decisions. I have no idea how old the intelligence was, Scott. I've heard allegations that this individual was warned that he was on India's radar, whatever that's supposed to mean. So Mm. I'm assuming he would have taken action himself. I'm also assuming it was shared with government officials who have a responsibility to ensure that, let's face it, foreign powers don't go mucking about in our internal affairs here on Canadian soil. Again, it's it's hard to say. Um, You know, if you don't act on intelligence in time, bad things happen. That certainly has been the history here in Canada. You're right. It's great he stands up now and says that we we protest this. But, boy, you know, the individual who was killed would probably rather be alive right now, wouldn't he, if the intelligence was acted on earlier? Why is this coming out now, do you think? Oh, well, if I was a fly on the wall when Modi and Trudeau met last week in India, um, certainly the impression we're getting is that it didn't go well. Relations are rather frosty. I understood that that President uh, uh, Modi really took a strip off Trudeau for a variety of things during the meeting. Then the plane didn't start when he was trying to come home. So it's hard to say, Scott. I don't, you know, there's never a politician. I was never involved in that level of government. But I I think it says that, you know, the relations between the two countries, which are, India's an important country. We can't ignore that. Not just because of the diaspora here in Canada. It's a major world power that some work has to be done to to try to figure out how do we get along better. But if it's shown that India was involved in this, and that's a huge, huge obstacle in trying to do that. Can you prove this? Some have said that he, he if you're going to come to the table with these allegations, you've got to have strong proof. Well, see, the problem in Canada uh, is that intelligence is not evident. Uh, we, that's been the case since CSIS was created back in 84. Um, you know, we took it out of the old RCMP Security Service, which collected to an evidentiary standard, which was once, you know, something you could use in court. A CSIS intelligence is collected to um, a different standard, reasonable grounds to suspect, and it's not evidentiary in nature. So, Proof. I mean, what do you mean by proof? Um, is intelligence good enough? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But given the system we have here in Canada, it does not seem it's not seen to be collected to the same standard as evidence is, which a law enforcement agency does. So, a great question, Scott, to which I have no answer, unfortunately. How does this investigation continue then? Obviously, India rejects these allegations wholeheartedly. The Prime Minister says he doesn't mean to provoke or escalate, but clearly that's going to happen with allegations like this. How does the investigation move forward? Well, look, CSIS has its job to do. It has its mandate. It has had it for the past almost 40 years under Sections 2B and, and 2A of the Act, deal with foreign espionage and foreign interference. CSIS is going to do its job. It's going to collect intelligence. It's going to recruit human sources. It's going to go to court to get warrants and intercept communications. And it, so CSIS's job doesn't change one iota. It's going to keep you know, doing what the government asked it to do. What the government does with that is another issue. Uh, does it use it? Does it put it in its back pocket? Does it go public as Mr. Trudeau did yesterday? I have no idea. But from a purely intelligence perspective, nothing really has changed. You just hope that the men and women of CSIS, and I have confidence in that they can do this, will do the best job possible to ensure the best information gets to the government uh, in, a, in a timely fashion.
Obviously, as we mentioned with the allegations from the Chinese Communist Party and such of late, uh, the, the government's slow for a public inquiry, a lot of dilly-dallying, dragging of the feet. Now, all of a sudden, it's a murder on Canadian soil. Uh, does this prove to everyone that we need foreign registries, we need to look into foreign interference into our country a lot more uh, intensely than we are? I don't know that a foreign registry makes a iota worth of difference in terms of our ability to protect ourselves. There's no question that we have to keep into, uh, investigating both from a, a security intelligence and law enforcement perspective, foreign interference, and we need governments that are going to act on the intelligence that they're given. Either send strong notes to countries who can't do this, or in the case of expelling diplomats, where it's shown to take uh, a point where, like we saw with the allegations of any involvement in a murder on our soil. I, I, my fear, Scott, and, and this is an honest fear I'll share with you, is we're not taken seriously. I've heard from colleagues that um, our allies are asking questions about Canada. Is it the country that we want to deal with in terms of intelligence sharing? Is they're not acting upon it? So let's, let's pull up our socks and let's, let's do what we can. We have, we have professional intelligence agencies. They're very good at what they do. I'm not just saying because I was there for three decades. But, you know, you collect for a reason. If it's not going to be acted upon, then the question is, well, why bother collecting in the first place? Where do you think this goes moving forward? Uh, relations between Canada and India are one thing, uh, but but even the case itself. Uh, but could this expose other uh, situations? Where does this move? How does this move forward? Let me draw a parallel here, for Scott. You've heard, of course, the allegations that Russia killed dissidents on, on, on British soil using yep. Nova Truck yep. or some kind of agent. Mm-hmm. You think for one minute Russia's going to send those um, alleged killers to Britain for trial? <laughs> if, you, if you believe that, I've got swampland outside of Russell for you. Um, who knows how we need it to react? It's a serious allegation. It has serious implications for relations. I guess we'll, we'll have to see where it goes. And if Canada believes this is true and wants you know justice to be served to the, the killers of this particular individual, it may run up against a stone wall in India. Then where does that take us? I, I have no idea. That's one reason why state intelligence got and didn't go into politics. Uh, how does the rest of the world view this, Phil? I mean, it's a bit of a hit and miss. The Americans seem to have come out and, and asked the same questions. What was India's involvement? My understanding is that the Australian uh, Prime Minister said, I don't answer questions on intelligence, and walked away. Britain is somewhere between the two positions. There, of course, of course, the three of them are five eyes partners, along with New Zealand and Canada, very important partners for us. It, it, it depends. I mean, it depends on people see Canada. But at the end of the day, um, if this is true, uh, the allegations are true, a murder was committed on our soil, by somebody who belongs to a foreign intelligence agency or whatever, then I think that we have to see this through. We can't just let people come willy-nilly into our country and start killing Canadians or, or, or residents. But where it goes, Scott, yeah, that's far above my pay grade. I'm just an old retired guy, so I don't think I have that much money on me right now. <laughs> How long do you think this will last before people will get answers? Wow, well, you're asking all the tough questions today. Because <laughs> if, if, it, if it's derived from intelligence, it could take some time because Intelligence is classified for a reason because of the sensitivity of the sources. And when you work in intelligence, the two things you protect with your life are sources and methods. It depends on how far the prime minister wants to go in letting out information. I've seen historically where leaders of states have gone quite public with, with intelligence. And as a consequence, sources disappear because people realize, hey, you're monitoring my phone calls or you've broken my cipher or whatever kind of thing. It's now a political issue. And I think that you know, when, you, when you work on the intel side, you want to you protect your information. But once it's out of your hands, it's out of your hands, and governments can do with it what they want. So I guess, you know, watch this space and see how much further information the prime minister is going to divulge to Canadians. It's quite rare that it happens in this country in the first place. So I guess we'll see if he has other things he wants to tell us as, as to what he believes happened and who is responsible for it. 
Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talking about the issue involving Canada and India and a Sikh activist killed on Canadian soil. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Unifor and Ford are continuing to negotiate after they extended the strike deadline by 24 hours uh, after uh, the union received a substantive offer from Ford. Where does this go moving forward? Is it different this time? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Glad to be with you. So, obviously, Marvin, a substantive offer on the table is the language that we're hearing, the deadline extended. This Is this good news? Do we just assume? I'm going to say it's good news. Um, uh, clearly, Scott, neither you nor I have been in the room as both sides have been negotiating. Frankly, where the United Auto Workers in the United States have been very clear what their demands were around wages, for instance, they wanted 20% increase up front and then 5% a year for the next four years. All Unifor has said is that they wanted enhanced compensation for their workers. So we don't know quite what they've been demanding, and then vice versa, we don't quite know what Ford has been offering. The fact that they called it substantive, uh, earlier in the negotiations, there was one day in which Ford put in an offer, and they rejected it just out of hand. They didn't even go any further. They said, you're not being serious. So whatever came down last night, just a little bit before midnight, clearly was enough. The union said, let us think about it. Let's consider it. Let's extend the deadline for 24 hours. So in that sense, I think this is good. Uh, This is a sign that we're doing exactly what we want them to be doing, which is negotiate. Deal in the U.S., deal in Canada, all the same. What's the issue with having uh, negotiations on each side or for both sides at once? Is that how it works? Right. Well, once upon a time, it was all one big happy family. The United Auto Workers negotiated on both sides of the border. And then one day, uh, people in Canada said, wait a minute, there are things we want here that aren't on your priority list. And that's when they decided to break up. They were originally the CAW, the Canadian Auto Workers. And then it was a few years ago, they changed their name to Unifor. In the past, these negotiations were led by a fellow named Jerry Diaz. He left the organization uh, under a bit of a cloud a couple of years ago. So this is the first contract from Lana Payne. We don't really have any history of Lana Payne. We don't know what kind of person she's she is in these negotiations. Now, the key thing is there are differences. So in Canada, uh, the union here, yes, they want wage increases. We don't know how much. They want uh, pension enhancements. Now, on the United States side, they said we want all workers to go back to a defined benefit plan. Right now, they're on a defined contribution plan. Um, Lana Payne has not said that here other than they want enhanced pension benefits. But then something that Canada wants that doesn't get discussed at all in the United States is we want some further commitments from Ford in terms of doing electric vehicle assembly, perhaps manufacturing some of the components here in Canada to keep Canada relevant as we transition towards EVs in the future. So the two organizations, although they're similar, have different goals. And then the flip side of this is whatever happens on either side affects the other. So if, for instance, Lana Payne pulled the rug out from underneath Ford and said, okay, all 5,600 workers are going out on strike. Within days, there would be Ford plants in the United States closed because they aren't getting parts from their Canadian counterparts. So I think what you're having here is both unions have to do a little talking about, okay, are you you fine if I pull the plug on this? And then vice versa, the United States, they pull the plug on this. Is this going to affect you? So I think they're trying to get their ducks in order behind the scene as well. 
Uh, typical of these negotiations, you hear of job security, wages, and pensions yep. and such. How does EVs or the production of EVs complicate this? Well, in, in some ways, I, I didn't think this was going to complicate it. So three years ago, when the last contract was negotiated, Jerry Diaz put first on his list the EVs. And, and if you can remember back three years ago, may seem like a lifetime ago, but he was very successful at getting Ford, GM, and Stellantis to make significant investments here in Canada. And to make that a reality, he also was successful in getting both the Canadian and provincial, Ontario provincial government to the table to, in some cases, uh, maybe not match, but at least put in some funds as well. So he did a great job uh, three years ago. I'm not just quite sure what Lana Payne is trying to get on top of what Jerry Diaz already negotiated. But clearly, it's all about, again, protecting Canada's interests, making sure we are part of that uh, going forward. So um, how much, you know, Ford has already put more than a billion dollars on the table of investments in Canadian operations for EVs. I don't know how much more she wants, or perhaps in the case of Ford, they've not really jumped into the fray with a battery plant. If you can recall, it was Stellantis that came up with a big battery plant. So maybe it's something like that. I, we just don't know. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, talking about uh, auto negotiations, which are on now. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, in a post-liberal uh, uh, caucus from London, uh, the big news was the reduction of the GST on rental properties and also the CEOs of the five major grocery chains were all going to be summoned to Ottawa. Remember, this sort of went on uh, six months ago, and uh, I'm not sure what was achieved then or what is achieved now. Many have said, including Dr. Sylvain Charlebois uh, from Dalhousie, that the profit margins are very slim. There's no evidence of, of, of profiteering or anything uh, um, uh, illegal going on uh, with uh, the grocery companies. Um, but yet we're, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, painting them, as he said, as the villains. Over 80% think that they are uh, are obviously being too greedy. And he said that's not the case. So fascinating column today. Fast forward uh, to the Globe and Mail. The Trudeau government has two plans for lowering gro- or to lower grocery prices. One is for show, the other is real. And Tony Keller is with his columnist for the Globe and Mail and here now. Tony, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Good to talk to you today. All right, Tony. I remember the uh, innovation minister actually saying that uh, we'll shame them if we have to. Is that part of one of these? Uh, which one was for show? What's for real? Yeah. So I think the the calling the uh, calling the CEOs in. Uh, to have a talk with them and, of course, making sure that they all walk through the door in a place where the cameras can catch them looking uncomfortable. That's that's for show because there's just no way that the government of Canada uh, can come up with a system by which it can specify what the price should be of the thousands and thousands of goods that are sold in every Canadian grocery store. And the government of Canada is knows that. Uh, so that's for show. What's real is look, we can do things to try to encourage competition and prevent consolidation in a whole bunch of different industries, including the grocery store industry, which is a very, very concentrated business in Canada. 
Uh, let's talk about competition because many have said that before, uh, and it seems that that is perhaps the loose thread here where something can be done. How would the grocers, the big five, react to that? Uh, we're going to get more competition. It reminds me of, uh, of the telecom industry when you make some space for them and then they eventually get gobbled up. Yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's easy to talk about theoretically and it's hard to do. Uh, what I will say is that Canadian competition law has been a bit toothless for many, many decades because there's always the worry that, oh, we got to protect Canadian industries from foreign competition. And so what ends up happening is, is we, we keep letting uh, companies consolidate and get rid of competitors and become bigger and bigger and bigger. And so in Canada at this point, you know, people probably don't realize the degree to which things are consolidated. I mean, law laws is under a bunch of different banners. So you may think you're shopping at different stores, but if you're going mm. to a No Frills, a Fortino's, a Fresh Mart, a real Canadian superstore, and the list goes on and on and on, you're at Loblaws. Um, if you're going to a Food Basics, you're also shot, you're actually at a Metro. Uh, if you're at Fresh Co., a Foodland, a Safeway, a Farm Boy, you're actually also at a Sobeys. Um, and a lot of people may not realize that these are all the same brands and the same companies. So there's there used to be more competition in this sector, and, and having more competition would not be a magic solution that would make inflation go lower next week. But in the long run, the hope is that that would just put downward pressure on prices, put downward pressure on profit margins. And as I talked about in my article, it actually would put upward pressure on the wages of people who work at those stores, as long as we've got a tight labor market, because those, those stores are actually going to have to compete for workers. What's the difference to the meetings that was called six months ago or that we did sort of similarly uh, the same thing? What was, is this not the same? How is it different this time? Yeah. So before there, there were concerns and talk about uh, anti-competitive behavior uh, on the part of, of the grocers. And there have been some, some evidences of, of, of this. Uh, and, but I think what we, what we saw yesterday was really just about we're summoning you to have a conversation about uh, the term the government used was stabilizing prices, um, and I think that's that's really for show. Uh, I think this, the, the the heads of the grocery companies understand that, and I think if you listen to what uh, Minister Champagne, the uh, industry and innovation minister, said yesterday, even he admitted, listen, we're we're not actually trying to tell the grocers what how much they should charge for each specific product. We're just trying to figure out how to make the market work better so that there'll be, you know, downward prices, downward pressure on prices. They, they're, they're pretty vague on exactly what these meetings are about. And we'll get some more details. They said they, that each of the grocers have to come up with a plan by Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm, you know, doubtful that there's any real plan there. But I think this is the grocers will do public relations. The government will do public relations. Everyone's just trying to put on a performance as if they're doing something. Uh, and you brought this up, my next question, Tony. What what can be done between now and Thanksgiving? I mean, remember there was a price freeze over Christmas last year. I mean, is that some, some sort of the same thing? I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to believe that anything truly substantial can be done. I mean, you, you know, if you're if you're if you're a grocer, you can't suddenly make your your operations uh massively more efficient in the next two weeks so that uh you could suddenly lower all your prices. And also, as I said, it's pretty hard to track all these all these prices. I mean, we can get a, kind of get an aggregate measure. That's what we do when we measure inflation. But you know, the government of Canada can't drill down and say, 
We want to know exactly how much you're charging for each one of these goods that you sell. And if the government of Canada says, well, it's really important that you make uh, eggs, bread, and peanut butter cheaper, okay, they can do that. But then there are 5,000 other products where they can adjust their prices. Right. So there's, it's hard to see how this is going to lead to anything. Uh, but the government wants to give the appearance that it's doing something. Tony Keller with us from the Globe and Mail. Columnist there, the Trudeau government has two plans for lower grocery prices. One is for show. The other is real. Uh, it's in the Globe and Mail. Tony, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Great to talk to you today. The headline in the Globe and Mail says it all. Canada once more forced to reckon with foreign intimidation. Uh, talking about, of course, the retaliation of the arrest of the Huawei executive uh, by locking up the two Michaels way back when. And now, uh, this time, agents of a supposedly friendly country, India, are alleged to be linked to the death of a Canadian community, a Sikh community leader in June who was shot uh, to death in a Surrey, B.C. parking lot. There has never been anything like this before an explosive public allegation that a foreign government's agents targeted and killed a Canadian citizen in Canada. Uh, it's it's bizarre when you think about it. Let's bring in Dr. Jack, uh, Jack Cunningham, Ph.D., Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, why, uh, uh, first of all, why are, why is Canada reacting the way it is and we're not hearing a lot from allies? What are your thoughts on, on hearing this information? Well, what's striking about the charges Mr. Trudeau made yesterday is that he didn't provide any evidence for them. I'm not a big fan of Mr. Pauly ever, but I think he's right to demand that some evidence be produced. And it's largely because there hasn't been any that our allies are uh, are not uh, joining the outcry. Why is that? Why would you make... I mean, we're, people are saying that this is uh, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented allegations, um, not only from Canada, but that the, the country of India would do such a thing. Why would you do that without having your ducks in a row? Well, in the case of Mr. Trudeau, it's largely because the Liberal Party, particularly in B.C., is essentially in the pocket of the uh, Sikh diaspora, which is much more militant than uh, than many Indian Sikhs in its demands for a Sikh homeland, and uh, and it's largely from those quarters that uh, that these charges originated when Mr. Nishar was murdered some months ago, and whether there's anything more than uh, than hearsay to back them up, we just don't know. What does this say about our ability to police foreign interference? Well, it. Uh, it may not say much about our ability to police foreign interference, although that's obviously in doubt given the uh, the problems with China. But it also raises the question of uh, the role of diaspora communities in formulating Canadian policy and uh, and uh, and intervening in uh, in Canadian uh, Canadian politics to the extent that they do. Mm. So, are these allegations um, unfounded? Are they questionable? I think they're certainly questionable because there's no evidence, at least yet. And why would the Allies not demand or ask to see this evidence, or have they? I suspect that they are doing so, if not publicly, at least behind the scenes. They don't want to uh, budge their relations with India in the way that we have probably done by uh, by making these charges. It's worth pointing out that... uh, because of the role of the Canadian Sikh diaspora in promoting Khalistan, uh, relations between Canada and India have been strained for some time. 
and they weren't helped any by uh, Mr. Trudeau's 2018 visit when he uh, donned archaic native garb and made a bit of a fool of himself. Canada caught between a rock and a hard place here with these two different with these two different facts because tilting towards India was part of the Indo-Pacific strategy designed to wean us away from excessive closeness to Beijing. If India is uh, if India's relations with Canada are strained, then we obviously have to look elsewhere for allies in that region. Uh, obviously, India, a, a big trading partner. Uh, how serious could this be? Could this take an awfully long time to repair? I think it will. I think because, precisely because the charges are unprecedented, their impact on the relationship is going to be profound. And unless Mr. Trudeau is able to uh, to produce uh, much more damning evidence than he's managed to come up with so far, uh, we're uh, we're on the uh, the bad side of uh, of a rather problematic argument. Did the prime minister get himself in the middle of this argument? I think he did. I think he injected himself prematurely. He should have waited for uh, for thorough investigations of the murder of Mr. Nijar to take place. And if there was any substantial evidence of uh, of Indian government complicity, to have uh, produced it at the time he made the charges. Otherwise, he's just mucking about with uh, with an important relationship for no discernible good. We had heard that this leader had been uh, had been uh, the victim of threats before. Did Canadians or Canada do enough uh, to take these threats seriously against him? I'm not sure that we did. I'm also not sure what the source of these threats would be. I mean, there's a lot of uh, gangland-style violence within the Sikh community in in, B- in in BC, and I'm not at all sure that uh, the Canadian authorities have uh, come up with a reasonable way of dealing with it. What do we learn from this, Jack? What's the takeaway here? Uh, the takeaway is that you don't make these inflammatory charges without evidence. Unless you want to find yourself uh, pretty alone in the world. Uh, uh, from what I understand, it's pretty hard to prove this sort of thing when you're looking for evidence. So will this ever be rectified? It may not. I mean, the thing is, the charge has been made regardless of what the uh, of what ultimate evidence is is brought up and regardless of what the ultimate conclusions of any investigation may be. The fact is, the charges have been made and the damage has been done to the relationship. How is the world viewing this? I think with some wariness and some skepticism, foreign observers are probably waiting to see if Mr. Trudeau does, in fact, have any evidence. Uh, do you think we'll see that if he does? does? Is he forced himself into a corner now where he has to fish or cut bait here? He has painted himself into a corner. He's going to have to either come up with evidence or back down or just stand by an unproven charge. And that's not a very enviable position to be in. You talked about trade agreements to diversify away from China, and now it seems like we backed into the same thing. What does this do for uh, trade deals moving forward? Uh, well, it uh, it means that uh, we're less advantageously positioned than we were in terms of coming up with alternatives to our reliance on the China trade. In the uh, there have there have been some. Uh, tentative agreements between Canada and India in recent years, most of which have not borne fruit because of the tension in the relationship uh, arising from what the Indians regard as Canadian interference in domestic matters. 
Are you concerned this will create divisiveness within Canada? More, more divisiveness, I guess, within Canada. I'm not so much concerned about that as I am about the diplomatic ramifications. I mean, the Indo-Pacific strategy represented a chance to make a clear break from our past uh, over uh, over reliance on China, both economically and geopolitically. And now it's uh, it's going to be harder to uh, to act on that uh, on that goal. What about the timing of all of this, Jack? Why now? Is this just brand new information that had to get out? Uh, maybe Mr. Trudeau has some brand new information. Again, he hasn't shared it with the with the public. Uh, it uh, it it may also be that he's looking for an opportunity to uh, pose on the world stage, something he likes to do, uh, and that he may see as as politically advantageous, given that his poll numbers have plummeted in recent months. Where does this leave a public inquiry? Uh, many thought it should be just focusing on the Chinese Communist Party. It's obviously going to be more broad than that. Uh, how does this change the discussion of a public inquiry? Well, I think the whole question of foreign interference in Canadian issues has now been taken to another level. And some sort of inquiry, some sort of investigation is clearly necessary. Dr. Whether Jack- the government will call one or not, I don't know. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, talking about the spat now between India and Canada. Jack, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. I got to tell you, I just as I was getting set up for the show and turning on my computer and stuff, I open up Twitter and there is a photo. I have no idea why this photo is up on my Twitter, but it's a picture of two kids clearly from the 1970s playing lawn darts. And I'm just looking at oh, this going, yeah. were, were those the good old days? Like I, I just, I look at this and I know why lawn darts were gotten rid of because you would put it like right yes. through someone's cranium. But did you have it? Did you ever have any? I've still got our set of lawn darts up at the cottage. Yeah. I have lawn darts. I never I have, had I'm in them. possession of an illegal game. Mm, I never had them, but I played them and I could never understand how you would end up putting it through someone's head. Like, I guess dad <laughs> gets drunk and has 15 beers and 15 bradors in the seventies. And uh, all of a sudden... <laughs> Um, he takes it out on Uncle Harry. <laughs> I, it's just, I, I look at this and I think this is either a real lost moment in time or this was absolutely some inventor who had no concept of danger. I'm not sure which it is. Yeah, I'm not, because I remember when they were very big and people had them. I remember my cousins having them and it, like there was no shortage of lawn darts around the neighborhood and I don't remember anybody ever getting dinged by them. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, but you can certainly see how it could be a problem. All it ta- well, these days, I mean, could you imagine if they put out lawn darts today and one person got brained, you'd have the biggest yeah. lawsuit in the history of time and uh, the whole and, enchilada would fall apart. And then I remember they tried to come up with a replacement. Yes. So it was basically the lawn dart without the dart on the a end, which, you know, like a suction cup or a weight, like what good's yeah. that? You know, how, how can you hurt little Jimmy or terrorize him with that? I mean, let's be serious. Oh, I'm sure yeah. there's a parent out there somewhere who could still find a lawsuit in there somehow. All right. Speaking of the law, you've got an interesting issue coming up on your show here, talking about uh, escarpments, Hamilton tent escarpments, encampments, or encampments rather. Sorry, tent encampments. You can do escarpments you know, too if you want. Yeah, let's do the whole thing. You can put a nice little lean to right against the escarpment there. <laughs> Maybe that I, would work. It goes down work. the whole length of the uh, bench there. Uh, but you know, the Hamilton police have an incredibly difficult job here because they're stuck in the middle trying to referee all of this. 
They are. And you hear from some people that, you know, the folks in the encampments don't feel safe with police around. And then you hear, but they don't feel safe without police around. Well, I don't know what the third option is. I mean, it's like, mm. remember back in the day, I think it was Harry Neal, the hockey coach was talking about his horrible team and he goes, we, we, we can't win on at home and we can't win on the road. And I just haven't found a third place for us to play. Well, that's kind of the, the sense with the police <laughs> is that they, yeah. th- that they're told, well, people get nervous when police are around cause they've had bad experiences, but then when they're not around, we get shootings and we get stabbings and we get beatings and everyone says, where were the police? Well, th- that, that's a, an unwinnable situation right there. You got to kind of pick one and go with it. You know, we talk about the unhoused or the homeless or whatever, and then we talk about the people who are intent, who are intent encampments, and it's a small percentage of, uh, I've heard numbers in and around 170 people, and it's odd that we can't fix this. It's not like there's thousands and thousands of people living in tents in the city. Um, it's amazing we can't juggle something to make uh, spaces available for 170-ish. Well, I think, Scott, it's because we can't agree on what the goal here is or what the, not what the goal is. I think we know what the goal is, what the method is. We, those who say, well, we need to have a big encampment somewhere out, maybe on the outskirts of town, get shouted down. That's what Kitchener, I think, is doing. That's right. But then they get shouted down saying, well, you're just trying to get the homeless people out of sight, out of mind, and just trying to eliminate them from your, you know, from your city. And then... But, but it, putting them in parks obviously isn't the ideal answer. And, you know, putting them in a parking lot is clearly not something that's being met with a lot of favor. So, I mean. Why not the green belt? Why not the green belt? Uh, yeah, well, you're. I'll I mean, let- I know, I know that sounds a little tongue in cheek, but seriously, I mean, I think that's what Kitchener's done. They found a space that is compatible, that isn't close to everything, that gives both the respect they need. So why are we not doing that? Ch- why are we not carving out a nice little space mm-hmm. in the green belt as a campground? One of the reasons I think, and one of the challenges is again, Differences of opinion. There are those who will argue that you need to have their accessibility near downtown because that's where the services are. And therefore, if you move them way out of town somewhere, they can't get to the services they need. And so then you would say, okay, well then take the services to them. But if you have people that are not necessarily tied down somewhere and are going to be moving around at times. Like it, it's, it is a very challenging thing, but it's part of it. I really believe this part of it is because if we could come up with one strategy that we would, even if not agree on, accept to let's go with this. What we've got though right now is we didn't want to have a big sanctioned encampment. So we've got little encampments. That's not working. People are mad about where people are setting up. The protocol is not being enforced yet. Who knows when that'll happen. It's, we just don't have any kind of agreement on this. And I I think that's one of the big issues here. We just, if we could get agreement, maybe something happens. And usually that never happens until something comes to a head. And unfortunately that could be something bad, something tragic. And then all of a sudden the city will have to react and common sense will prevail. But really until that happens around and around and around we go, which is why we don't have housing in the first place. When you say something bad will happen, uh, there's two points to that. Something bad has happened. There's lots bad that has happened. We've had people killed in these encampments, but that's not a big deal apparently because those are encamped people. It's going to have to be to a person who is a resident of the neighborhood and then it's, you know, it's going to be tragic no matter what, but it's Man. just, but we're, if, is that, is that really what we're waiting for to be the impetus? I hope not. I hope not. That's not what we're expecting. 
No, but that's what it'll take to jerk some action loose. Uh, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Scott, you asked who's driving the bus, but honestly, I think we should be asking if the bus driver even had their hand on the wheel.